This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Is a B-movie studio from the 1980s responsible for the blockbuster films of today? Dust off your video rental card and let's find out. Once again, it's time for The Idiots. Objective defense of the 80s from a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of guys who love going to the video store and renting movies for 99 cents. My name's Will, and joining me as always is my friend and my co host. Ray. I got a dollar. Let's go. <laughs> I'd rent that for a dollar. Yeah. Uh, today on the show, we are going to be talking about Canon Films with author Austin. You know, seeing author and Austin next to each other is kind of hard. With author Austin Trunick, who wrote the Canon Film Guide Volume 1. Just one, 1980 through 1984. It's going to be other volumes. It's going to take that much to tell the story of Canon Films. And we'll find out all about that when we talk to uh, him. But before we continue with the show, please like, subscribe, rate, review, do all those things that help other folks find the idiots. Yep. And go over to Tee Public. They got more than just t-shirts there. They got coffee cups with mm-hmm. our logo oh, yeah. on it. And uh, you could be the coolest person at your office, which right now is probably your house, but still. <laughs> <laughs> Man, thinking how great it would be to be the coolest person in my house. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. As I drink out of my idiot's cup. And also hire a skywriter to go up in a plane with, uh, you know, a plume of smoke and write, uh, listen to the idiots. And will you marry me? Yeah, I heart the idiots. I heart, That's yeah. a good one for smoke. Yes. Yeah, use the, have them do the heart because that's probably cheaper than all the letters in the yes. word. So. <laughs> yeah, or get one of them crazy banners that they drag behind a plane. That's, those yes. are cool too. Yeah. Often at the beach, I see those. Is anybody going to the beach? I don't know. Okay, hey. <laughs> Before we think about all the things we're not able to do right now, let's get caught up on 80s news. Voice went up at the end there like I was hitting puberty. I liked it. It was cool. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sounded like you were excited. I am excited. <laughs> okay, so hey, today on 80s News, so much to talk about. You know, we recently uh, had posted that Head of the Class debuted uh, on someday this day in September many years ago. Well, we just recently learned earlier this year, and that's why I'm bringing this story up, that Head of the Class will be back, or could be, rather, back in session, according to Variety.com. HBO Max has issued a pilot production order, plus five additional scripts with a potential series based on that classic ABC sitcom from the 1980s. Were you a fan of the original show? I liked the show. Yeah, I thought it was fun. Yeah, me too. Uh, a remake, not too sure about, but you know what? We'll see. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, hmm. Well... <laughs> Okay, so let's make it real contemporary, right? Of course, the original starred Howard Hessman, who we loved from WKRP. It was a little odd as a kid to see him as he wasn't Johnny Fever. Suddenly he was a serious teacher. Yeah, that might be the first time I remember going, that's Johnny Fever. Why is he teaching kids? Like like the the connection to Johnny Fever was so strong, you couldn't see him in the other role at first. Right. But you kind of, you got used to it, but. Yeah, you start realizing like, uh, oh, um, there's the act, what acting is like. Someone yeah, can, but then you just kept waiting for the cops to bust in and goes, <laughs> come on, Johnny fever. Yes. You're under arrest for impersonating a teacher. <laughs> that should have been the final episode. I wish. Yeah. No, I wish everything was a crossover <laughs> of everything else. That would be amazing. Yeah. But so, but a contemporary, no, truly contemporary. I'm not trying to get political, Ray, but what a truly contemporary <laughs> head of the class show have half the class at home watching on a computer. Uh, and the other half in class with a mask on. That would be harsh. Maybe that's why we haven't heard much about Head of the Class coming back recently. Yeah. This is the last story about it. Well, yeah, they're not really making a lot of stuff right now. It's sad. So, uh, unfortunately, on the original show, Howard Hessman didn't last the entire series. He left after the fourth season, and he was replaced by comedian Billy Connolly, who played uh, Billy McGregor. I don't remember whether I, you know, my feelings for the show changed or not, but, um, you know, I did have a particular affection, I guess, for Howard Hessman again because of WKRP. Yeah, nothing against that guy, but I think uh, I left the show when Johnny Fever left. Yeah. I think that was the end for me. Yeah, yeah, probably me too. Of course, uh, that show introduced us first to Robin Givens, uh, 
Robin Givens, uh, who unfortunately right now is most notoriously probably remembered for being married briefly to Mike Tyson, right? I mean, yeah, sad, but true. Uh, and also Dan Schneider, who was, uh, you know, we liked him in, um, what was he in? Uh, Better Off Dead. He's in Better Off Dead. Oh, okay. He's the guy who, um, Diane Franklin character is living with, you know, who, uh, has a crush on her and wants to, you know, and then, um, yeah, gets all yeah. mad because she's falling for uh, John Cusack. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hey, in other eighties news, again, another opportunity to just, you know, represent the longevity, the staying power, the love, the affection for 1980s runs deep. Are you familiar with the product American Girl? Yes, my daughter used to get those when she was younger. Okay, yeah. So you, then you probably also took out a second mortgage on your home. Yeah. Because the, they're pricey, and uh, they sell a lot of cool accessories. Now, that in, in defense of the company, they make a really good product. All the, you know, the little accessories, toys, etc. And they are dolls that uh, span, you know, the generations. They have different decades represented. And of course, I'm bringing this up because we just got a doll that represents the 1980s, Courtney the doll from 1986. And I got to tell you, like my daughter has these dolls too. And I've never really been over, you know, really taken with them. But this one she showed me, I was like, this is super cool. Yeah, you got to get this one. (laughs) Among one of the accessories you can get for Courtney is an actual working to scale for her Pac-Man video game. Nice. (laughs) Isn't that cool? That is cool. That's the one with the Walkman, right? Yeah, she's got a Walkman. You could actually put the cassette in. And it has a case for the cassette, and you put it in the thing. She has a boombox, where if you get the boombox with the cassettes, apparently it plays music. Hmm. Yeah, she comes with other really cool 80s things. So I'm finally now, you know, interested in dolls. <laughs> yeah, now you're on board. Yeah. So, hey, in other 80s news, this is exciting. We don't know, I think, when we're actually get to see the film. But according to MovieWeb.com, the Coming to America trailer is rumored to be arriving very soon. This website is reporting that within the next two weeks, we'll get to see the sequel or a trailer for the sequel for the long-awaited follow-up to Eddie Murphy's 1980 comedy classic. This has been something that folks have been clamoring for decades. Uh, It's been teased to us uh, for for decades from the folks that worked on it. And we're actually finally getting it. Quite honestly, I I find it hard to believe that Eddie Murphy, this is one of the things he's doing, you know, that he's getting back to being like Eddie Murphy. It seemed like he went off on this path where he was sort of, I don't know, distancing himself from the things that he did that made us love him in the 1980s. Yeah, he's got that weird thing going on where he wants to be like a legitimate a legitimate actor yeah. and be respected and all that. So I, I, I'm starting to get worried about this one because mm. I don't know if he's going to come out with that same uh, gunslinger comedy style he had in the 80s. Mm. But, you know, if, <laughs> if we're to believe Wesley Snipes, I'll be pissing my pants because it's so funny. <laughs> right. Yes, on a related story, uh, Wesley Snipes said, and I quote here with regard to uh, coming to America, you're going to have to wear a diaper. You're going to have to put something or some pad underneath because you're going to just leak all over yourself. I am telling you. So there you go, folks. You're warned. Uh, when you go when you go to see this film or see it from the comfort of your home, have something underneath you. <laughs> I encourage everyone who goes to the theater to show up <laughs> in a diaper. <laughs> That would be so much fun. I'm not trying to make this political. You know that. It shouldn't be political. It's not political. But now you, you show up to the movies with a mask on, wearing a diaper. You, what do you tell the people that if they're concerned about the diaper, you say, look, man, I'm being really super safe here, right? It's, nothing's coming out of me at, at any end no. that's going to expose you, anybody. Yeah. I, I'm worried that the theater's going to be shut down to have to be you know, cleaned and sterilized because we're all going to pee all over right. everything. You just opened it Wesley up. Snipes, yeah, Wesley Snipes warned us, and you people didn't listen. Right. So, folks, you know, we need a new movement here. Wear your diaper. Okay, please, everybody wear a diaper to protect the movie theater when you watch Coming to America 2. Now, I didn't know about what the story was, um, but in this uh, breakdown from movieweb.com where they mentioned that the trailer... Oh, it's a, they say they point out that the trailer usually comes out within a few weeks after the ratings announcement. Hmm. All right, so the movie's been rated PG. Ugh. So they're guessing the trailer's coming out because we just got the rating for the new film, so we know what that is. Of course, Eddie Murphy returns as Prince Akeem. What I didn't know was that the story is about that Akeem, uh, after returning to become the king of Zamunda, he later learns that he has a son he never knew about in, in America, a street-savvy Queens native named Lavelle. Hmm. Um, says, honoring his royal father's dying wish to groom this son as the crown prince, 
Akeem and Semi, you remember Arsenio Hall's character, mm-hmm. set off to America once again. I am very concerned now that I hear the rating for the movie. Oh, yeah. Well, what was the first one? It's R. Is the that first right? R. Oh, yeah. no. Eddie, you done us wrong. I mean, Eddie, Eddie mm, you Conan the Barbarian does. You drop down. <laughs> Wait, what? What's that reference? Because was it uh, Destroyer was PG? PG-13 or PG at the time, yeah. They dropped their R rating for the second one. I didn't realize that, but that does explain it, because you're right. I mean, it did change quite a bit. This is going to change a lot of jokes in this one. Well, that is a shame. And I wonder what the logic is even of that, because obviously fans of the original are fans of the R-rated version. Those are the folks who are trying to get back to the movies. So I don't know. Maybe he wants to invite the Shrek kids, too. Oh, boy. No, no, no. All right. Like you now. I don't know. Hopefully, this- I'm worried now. Yeah. Damn it. I, I want to love this movie, but they're making it hard right now. Yeah, now you got me worried because remember at the same time he said this was coming out, he said, when this one's done, we're going to make the next Beverly Hills Cop movie, which was like, all right, cool. We can somehow, uh, you know, uh, retcon Beverly Hills Cop 3 out of canon and get to back to a nitty gritty Beverly Hills Cop. But oh, no. I'm starting to get concerned about the Murphy. Yeah, you know what? Now I'm downing Wesley Snipes, too. How, I don't need a diaper for anything PG I've ever seen in my whole life. (laughs) Nothing PG leads to incontinence, Wesley. Hmm. I I did also read, though, that, uh, you know, Wesley Snipes talked uh, that his character is playing, he seems like he's going to be the bad guy because he's playing the brother of the character who was set to marry Prince Akeem. So the, the, the woman he was betrothed, you know, to... Her brother, her big brother is is Wesley Snipes. So it seems like maybe he's back because now the kingdom was taken from his family because, you know, she, his family didn't marry into royalty. So he's mad. I don't know. That sounds kind of interesting and has some, you know, possibility for funny things, but not PG. No, what what is that PG? Ah, I'm so angry. I can't even talk right now. Yeah. It's depressing. All right. I'm sorry for depressing you. Okay. So, hey, let's just call that 80s news. Then. Dun, 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 dun. Ugh. Armed with a video rental card and a degree in film studies, our guest today is a professional critic. He's written for Mental Floss and Consequence of Sound, and he's currently the cinema editor for the nationally distributed entertainment magazine Under the Radar. And now, he's documented his love of classic movies in his new book, The Canon Film Guide, Volume 1, 1980-1984 an in-depth guide to the legendary B-movie studio. The 500-page book shares behind-the-scenes stories from the people who made such VHS-era classics as the Missing in Action films, Breakin' and Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo, The Revenge of the Ninja Movies, The Last American Virgin, and many, many more. It's a must-have for fans of the canon films of the 1980s. Please welcome to the show, Austin Trunick. Thank you for having me, guys. Thanks for coming on. So, Austin, you, you've uh, taken on the Herculean task, and I say Herculean for a particular reason, uh, of writing what's essentially, I don't know, it's a tome. Uh, it's an epic in what will be three parts, my understanding is, uh, telling the tale of uh, the Canon film, Canon Films, Canon Film Group, uh, and in, in particular, under the uh, Golden Globus years. Mm-hmm. I'm describing the the trilogy of books as it's Lord of the Rings with Chuck Norris and <laughs> Van Damme instead of Hobbits and Elves. Wait a second. <laughs> we want to see that film now. Now, yeah. I want to see Lord of the Rings with them. And, you know, now, it, 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 this is a, as a side note, you know, we had those Lord of the Rings films and the Hobbit films, you know, when we were kids. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was, uh, who was that? That was those animated. Rankin Bass. Rankin Bass, of course. Had Canon Films gotten there, you know, it seems like it maybe was a jump ball to get the license uh, in the 70s or, hey, we might have seen that version of Lord of the Rings. That would have been something, wouldn't it? Hmm. Yeah, we we could have. It would have been, I'm sure, some some amazing casting. <laughs> so, yeah. Michael Dudikoff as Frodo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I want to dream cast uh, a Canon Films version of uh, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> uh, so for folks who don't know, because, you know, hey, we know because we're 80s nerds and plenty of the idiots that uh, love the 1980s pop culture may not recognize the Canon logo the way we do and are able to spot a Canon film at a video store the way we were as kids. But Canon Films, you know... Uh, was responsible for a lot of the films you loved in the 1980s and may not have even known it. I mean, that could be the theme of this episode, really. So, you know, you've got your loosely tied together ninja trilogy, mm-hmm. and starting with Enter the Ninja. You've got the American Ninjas. You've got all the missing in actions. 
And so when I say that, and that sort of maybe seems like one genre of films, but you've also got films that were more breakout, I said, or, or, or more mainstream, more, more nuanced. Like on one end, you've got Last American Virgin. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and then you've got Breakin', which, you know, I love the Breakin' films. But you've also got Over the Top, Masters of the Universe, Bloodsport, uh, the, the least good uh, Superman film. <laughs> so that's canon in a nutshell. So you don't even realize it, but you loved canon films. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so, and Austin, as he explained here, he's taken it upon himself to write this epic tale of canon. Why you? Why did you feel compelled to do this? This is a you know again a huge endeavor. Well, I've been I've been writing about films for more than a decade for various outlets online, and I wanted something that I could work on on my own. And these are movies that I grew up particularly renting them yeah. over and over again in my youth. And five, six years ago, a lot of these were being reissued on Blu-ray or coming to streaming. And so you could find them again. A lot of these had been gone since the video era. Mm. And I just started picking them up and doing research, writing, writing essays about them. I didn't know what, I didn't know that this was going to be a book at first. I thought maybe a series of online articles about the making of these movies that I loved as a, as a kid. But as that grew and as I wrote more and more of them, it turned into a, a giant trilogy of books. Yeah. The first one is 500, 550 pages <laughs> and is out now. Yes. Volume one, which only covers 1980 through 1984. I mean, that's, was there a more prolific movie studio in the 1980s than Canon? There really was not as far as a U.S. studio. And like you said, they, what makes them really special is they were prolific and they worked in every imaginable genre. I remember going to the video store and the, the Canon logo, it's the the C arrows sort of meshed together. Right. You could find it on every, every shelf there, really, whether it was musicals or action or science fiction, or you have your Superman and masters of the universe, things that even young kids would gravitate towards and, that have that exposure to that Canon logo. Right. Yeah, there was there was a time in 1986, which is will be covered in the second book. But they were putting out a movie in the theaters almost every week. Yeah, it's you know talking about those boxes. Um, just the art alone inspired, you know, it sparked the imagination as a you know as a kid standing in a video store. You can almost fantasize immediately about what this film might be about, and so boom. And I think there weren't there boxes like slightly larger than other videotapes. Yeah, they were. They had the large MGM book box for most of the releases, especially for the first half of the eighties. That yeah, they were about they, almost six by nine in size, so much larger than your actual videotape. And they had beautiful painted artwork for most of them. Um, even they even tabbed Drew Struzan, who did the. Star Wars and Indiana Jones art for right. for some of theirs, so yeah, they they were they were putting time and effort into getting people's eyes on their posters and and video covers. I guess it seems like this was part of their strategy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they were they were smart uh, in the marketing. Yes, Canon was. They, I mean, they didn't create this model. It dates back to like AIP and some of these earlier. Um, Roger Corman would sure. do this, but they would take the movies. That were just ideas at that point. It might just be a picture of Charles Bronson and a title, 10 to Midnight, and they won't have a script or an idea of what it's about or directors or screenwriters attached, <laughs> just that. And they could take that and they would sell it to international markets, video markets, cable. They would sell HBO and Cinemax and these places before, before even making the movie. So when the movie actually... <laughs> When the movie actually came out, they had already they had already made a profit. It didn't matter if no one went to see it in theaters, which was often the case, or if everyone everyone bashed it in the in the newspaper reviews. Right. They were ahead, and that's how they were able to make so much, uh, make so many films. And that was yeah, that was really part of their strategy. They knew that that artwork could sell a movie, even if the quality wasn't there exactly to back it up. That is insane. I mean, now, you know, Ray and I often on the show will complain about films today. 
Like, how did they get a, how did they get greenlit? You know, some of these films, like it, it, the pitch alone, we would have said, no, we can tell you right now it's going to be a flop. And you know, these films are usually not, the ones that- Not me. I, I'd say yes well, to just about any movie. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm talking about contemporary films, Ray. The 80s films, of course. Um, but but the fact that that, that Canon could get a, a budget or get funding based on a picture, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, they often did. They often did. Um, and, and it's amazing too, because they, there were times they didn't, they, they were very much of the mind to throw everything they could at potential buyers yeah. and whatever had the most purchases was what they would end up making. But mm. there, for everyone that did come out, all the hundreds of movies that they did produce, there are probably twice as many that just never went anywhere. And it's, yeah. it's amazing to see some of the artwork of movies that they never made, um, but wanted to. Yes. You know? Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I do want to ask you about some of the films that weren't made because that's fascinating to me too. Um, but mm-hmm. speaking about their strategy, uh, part of what Canon did was is they they spotted a, a gap in the films that Hollywood was creating. So this is an era where we still had the, I guess in the seventies we had still more of what would you say like an art house film. They were more uh, auteurs still making films, and what right. we come to associate the eighties with, you know, these big blockbuster action films. We didn't have until Canon really came in there and, and, and first exploited this uh, a gap in what they anticipated people were expecting. Is that, is that, can you talk about that? Yes, there was definitely, especially with new markets like cable and video rental stores, there was a huge demand for these low, low budget, middle budget action films, things that you, know, you could flip on at, you know, one in the morning on, on HBO and just sit and watch and yeah they they took that over there wasn't really that especially in the exploitation films and when it comes to action which was their bread and butter they they filled that space and they did an amazing amazing job with it you have names like chuck norris and van damme and um charles bronson charles bronson in his 60s at that point made eight movies with canon Uh, Death Wish 2, 3, 4, and all these things that were staples on video and, 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 and cable back right. then. And, and again, so it, you, you've got, you know, you, as, you, as you point out, you cast these folks like Jean-Claude Van Damme and Chuck Norris, uh, Stallone and Over the Top, mm-hmm. Dolph Lundgren and Masters of the Universe. Now, ultimately, these folks then take this model that Canon had. Uh, this Canon look mm-hmm. and, and started throwing big budget behind it, getting big studios behind it. And what was the effect of that on Canon itself? Did Canon's business then recede because of competition yeah, from the big guys? Uh, Canon went ultimately went under for many reasons, many bad choices, many bad investments. But even had they made it through those, their their model and their way of doing things, they they wouldn't have been able to survive. When you get into the '90s, especially with action, all of a sudden became bigger budget. Um, it became, you had green screens and special effects and things starting to be done on the computers into the 90s. And Canon was part of an era up till, you know, in their heyday where if you were going to have a guy jump over an exploding, an explosion on a motorcycle, mm-hmm. you had to find a stuntman who would ride that motorcycle over a car as you blew it up with explosives. <laughs> the things that the martial arts you know, and when people are kicking and punching or swinging swords, you had to find stuntmen that were going to let Chuck Norris or John claude Van Damme punch them or swing a sword at them. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's something that when it comes to action, it's, you get it now in some of the martial arts movies that are coming back and some of these actors nowadays, but that was really the last heyday of practical action movies where you were seeing but like if something very cool some very cool action happens it's because it was actually happening yep. when they were filming it back then you mean the good old days mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah when they had a sense of you know danger mm-hmm. uh what was i just reading about uh, what is the ninja movie that they have the final fight scene on a rooftop where uh, it's revenge of the ninja that took like days and days of preparation and trying to be mm-hmm. safe and and i've met when i read that story i thought by 80s standards yeah i mean mm-hmm. 80s safety standards they're still blowing stuff up while these guys are you know 
kicking each other around on a rooftop. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the, some of the fav- my favorite interviews and I've done over the course of writing these books has been with stuntmen yeah. because you can ask them about a specific stunt and say, did that hurt? And the answer is always yes. <laughs> they can tell you what stitches they got or where yeah. they were burned or yeah. stuntmen, stuntmen in the eighties were some of the bravest people Oh yeah, out there. <laughs> yeah, Ray would usually joke. You know, they just slip somebody an extra twenty bucks, and uh, can we set you on fire? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that's how it worked in the eighties. Mm-hmm. They just uh, absolutely. They just go out to lunch and be like, "Hey, after lunch, uh, can you jump off a building? I- I'll pick up the tab." <laughs> no problem. I'll buy you a beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw Ray shaking his head when you talked about how you know a lot of these films would run run at one o'clock in the morning on these different cable networks. That's how Ray spends his nights now, right? I still do that. I'm still up late watching these old movies. And do you have uh, any Canon? And Ray's got a quite an extensive VHS collection, uh, hundreds. You have any Canon uh, films over there? I'm pretty sure uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 mm. is a Canon movie. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have it, but I recently watched it on TV, uh, The Barbarians, The Two Brothers. Uh, I, I think that's Canon also. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, Canon. Yeah, there's a there's a, so many of them, though. But yeah. yeah uh, Texas Chance of Massacre 2 is in my top five movies of all time. So I know that's canon. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so are there films, you know, so again, so canon, I don't think folks appreciate that, um, you know, they're regarded oftentimes as a, a B-level filmmaker, uh, film, a studio, but they, as, as we're talking about and learning, they contributed ultimately to bigger films uh, from other studios by creating a certain marketing, you know, or honing this marketing technique and the story and the look do you genuinely love Canon films or is it ironic? Is this, is, is your book ironic in a sense? This, uh... No, no, I, I genuinely love these. I have a great amount of nostalgia for a lot of them. Yeah. Um, there were ones I couldn't see as a kid. You have your Bolero and yeah. the <laughs> stuff I didn't see until I was an adult, but yeah, no, a lot of these, I just, I adore. I, I rented them over and over again. I, I do love them. The one thing I wanted to avoid with this book was being cynical. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of B-movie writing happens through, because of irony, but it's it's always embedded with cynicism. I I, I don't want to take the piss out of these movies. I want to, at the same time, I I don't want to be disingenuous about what they are. Some of these are bad, but Mm. in that, in those cases, I want to explore why why they were that way. They're usually reasons, and they're usually good good mm. stories behind <laughs> the ones that are bad. Why they're why how they came to be that way. So, what is a by your by your uh, estimation? What's a bad canon film? Bad canon film. Well, I enjoyed. I really enjoyed writing about Bolero, the mm. Boderic, uh erotic right. epic adventure film. <laughs> but oh, gosh, sometimes when you're watching a movie five, six, seven times to write about it and take notes. <laughs> oh no. That was one of the films that got worse. Yeah. <laughs> harder. Every time I'd put it on, it's like, mm. oh no. <laughs> uh, but it, it was one of my favorite ones to write about because it is mm. a fat like it's it's got there's a lot of stuff, a lot of information about just this terrible fight that the Der- Bo Derek and her husband had with Cannon that mm. uh, was dragged out in the newspapers everywhere. And ended up being bad publicity being good publicity because it got people to see the movie. Right. And for folks who don't know, cause I, I, they didn't say, cause uh, that the book, um, you know, not only does it contain interviews, but it, it goes into the details about these films and does, there's dozens of them, dozens of films came out during this period of time. And all of them are, have some kind of fascinating aspect to their story apart from the story of the, you know, the plot, I should say. Mm. Um, I think we'll disagree about this. One of the Canon films I think is a bad film Masters of the Universe. And I know Ray disagree. Ray's already disagree with me. He no, loves that movie. I love that movie. But it's nothing <laughs> like the cartoon. I mean, you go in there, it's bait and switch. Come on, Canon. No, no, yeah. They they did not did not make a good uh, He-Man <laughs> movie, but that that that's another movie that has some really interesting stories behind it. Just knowing that they Canon pulled the plug, Canon ran out of money and literally turned the lights out before they could finish the final scene. So the director had to go back with Dolph Lundgren and the guy who plays Blade in the movie, Anthony DeLongis, 
and have him put on the Skeletor, <laughs> golden Skeletor armor. And basically, you can see it's like two floodlights, the final battle, and, and just they're just fighting by themselves and in one day. <laughs> so there, there's there's a lot of a lot of things mm. when you're watching that. Once you know the story of why or how it ended up the way it did, it made sense. They, I mean, they, they wanted to put in things like Battle Cat. And right. They just, they couldn't. Canon didn't have the budget for them. Yeah. And so instead we get things like Gwildor, Gwildor instead of yes. Orko. Yeah, <laughs> you can't make a man fly, so let's just put Billy Bart what... Party in the grossest little costume they can, <laughs> they can slap on him. I think that's what you said, Ray, right? Well, they, yeah. they have technology to make Orko fly, I mean. Oh, so the, and it's set in like Newark, New Jersey, isn't it? It's something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's a uh, some suburb of. It's in California. It's like yeah, it's a, a little uh, suburb of Los Angeles. How do you feel then when we have other movie studios now that have the rights to these types of things, like Masters of the Universe? That's probably the, be the only one, I suppose, taking a stab at that film. I'm I, I I wonder because if if the if I'd had the current movies that we have now when I was a kid, yep. <laughs> I. Like as as an adult, I'm disappointed by the Transformers movies because they're not the Transformers I grew up with, the right. red boxy Optimus Prime. Yes, mm-hmm. but I also have to wonder if if I was you know six years old seeing this now, would this be <laughs> would this be extremely cool? Yeah, um, so it's it's hard it's hard to have perspective. You know, it's, it's, I'm going to have it as like the as the disgruntled, uh, <laughs> angry fan of this stuff from the '80s. Yeah, I think uh, kids miss out now because the big budget movies make all the other movies look so bad. <laughs> so you don't get the experience of the B movie anymore. K- kids won't even watch them. Okay. They're just like, yeah, this looks like garbage. Where's all the special effects and green screen? Jumping off of that, I think children today, I think with my own my own kids, they don't have the experience of just having to watch what was on. Yes. <laughs> yeah. If, if there was a bad Canon movie playing at, you know, 1 PM on a Saturday afternoon and it was raining, yep. <laughs> that's, that's what I watched. My, my daughter can, if she doesn't like the first five minutes of a cartoon, she can flip to another one on Netflix or yep. <laughs> Hulu or something else. Yeah. So, so she doesn't have that experience of this is the movie I rented this weekend. I'm going to watch it to the <laughs> <Yes>. end. <laughs> I'm going to get my 99 cents worth. Yeah. All right. Yeah, Ray and I have talked about that, that, yeah, kids today. But yeah, it does seem like, look, in, in, in addition to just being middle-aged folks who love stuff from the 1980s, it just, it seems like a scientific, objectively scientific, right, which we like to focus on in the show. If you have more choice, each thing becomes less special. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you going to raise your kids on canon films? Both of my kids had watched one of the two ninjas. My, my daughter watched the original uh, Shokasugi Ninja, and my son watched the... Michael Dudikoff, American Ninja movies, just when they were a few weeks old with me, because I've been working on this too, both of their births. <laughs> That's but, how you celebrated. <laughs> yeah, so with it, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. In, in the second book, I'm, ra- I'm, I'm wrapping it up. I'm near the end. But one of the things I've written, I'm writing about now are the kids' movies they did. They did the canon movie Tales, which was canon's attempt to basically fill the matinee space that Disney was... Disney was filling with reissues every year of their old classic animated movies. Right. And so they made these very extremely low budget, um, mainly shot in a warehouse in Israel fantasy films. And I wanted to watch them with my daughter, who's now five to see if a kid would be entertained by these like today. Right. I, I told her, I'm like, do you want to help me? Do you want to help daddy with, a, with his work today? And her question was, is, does it have ninjas in it? <laughs> I think she assumes that everything I watch, I'm writing about for this. That's, that's her idea of this book. Would that have made her more likely to want to watch it or less likely to want to watch it than ninjas? I think she'd want ninjas. So, so the early, <laughs> you incepted her within the first month of her birth. You know, it didn't even occur to me something to mention. I mean, we do have canon to thank also, I think, right? For really popularizing the ninja in American pop culture. It yeah. Seems. Yeah, they did. They did. Um, as far as Western appearances, the the only notable one before Enter the Ninja was, there were some ninja bad guys in the Octagon, Chuck Norris, 1980. Mm, oh, yeah, right. But... They weren't front and center. The, yep. the first American movie that a lot of people saw here was Enter the Ninja and Revenge of the Ninja. And those both did really well. And yeah, they were super influential. I think even Frank Miller at one point had said when he was designing Elektra and the, the old Daredevil comics oh. that 
Mm. Well, the ninjas that Daredevil fought, he was looking at the Shokasugi. Mm. Shokasugi was the guy who brought all the ninja weapons and things in. Like the Ninja Turtles have their weapons they have because Shokasugi had them in Enter the Ninja. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. That hadn't occurred to me till just now. You know, my buddies, as a result of seeing these films when we were kids, they got ninja geese, ninja tabbies, (laughs) you know, the shoes that the ninjas wore, shurikens, you know, what we call Chinese stars, Mm-hmm. nunchucks and these dudes now look I, I drew a line at some point this won't surprise ray you know playing in our house fighting that's one thing they had samurai swords you know or katanas at these my two friends who i won't name they know who they are would go out at night with these ninja outfits on climbing on roofs trying to sneak around they made <laughs> this is a notorious story <laughs> They were climbing from my one friend's roof to try to get on another roof. And they had, you know, made their own grappling hook. They throw it up there. I think it's on something. Mm -hmm. They start climbing. I think they immediately, you know, fall, breaks. They land on the roof. They're terrified that they're going to get spot. So they, someone says, you know, throw the smoke bomb that they made. Their smoke (laughs) bomb is Johnson's and Johnson's baby powder balled up in a (laughs) thing of aluminum foil. So just this powder splatters on the roof. Uh, yeah, that had a, quite an influence. I just realized on our uh, playtime in the 1980s. Our yeah, <laughs> uh, Canon, Canon, definitely responsible for the the ninja yeah. craze. And I know after I saw the Desperate Deathwish movies, and they didn't do the first one, but the others, I wanted to go out and seek revenge upon people. I still do. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't be a very good Paul Kersey vigilante. I would be, I, I would be the guy who goes out at night and instead of punishing muggers and criminals, I would be taking down like old garage sale flyers. <laughs> <laughs> or, or Christmas lights that are up in <laughs> April. That, that I, I would that would be me. That would be my sort of night stalking activity. <laughs> you know, you talked about Bolero and watching uh, watching it seven eight times. Have you then therefore watched all the films that you discuss in the book? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and multiple times. And were you able to? Or did you try and track them all down on, on VHS or was it just streaming? I've or? got a dresser here. I'll have to send you guys a picture. It's yeah. just a clo- it's my nephew's like a little kid's dresser, but each drawer you pull it open and it's just full of Canon tapes. Oh, <laughs> it's been the easiest way of it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these are still unavailable mm. on DVD and Blu-ray, which is unfortunate. It's lucky because right now you can watch a lot of them on YouTube as well if you wanted to because nobody's bothering to take them down. Yeah. But, <laughs> nobody's yeah. chasing after that. Yeah. But yeah, most, most, I would say about half of them, the VHS copy was the, the best possible copy of the mm. movie. My, my computer, my, my monitor is actually raised by it's two VCRs underneath it. To, to keep my posture up. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, from all the I, hours. I, I watch them just right on there, and it has all the artifacts in there from being viewed too many times. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's also <laughs> much like you know. I like a, I like film films or movies shot on film because of those you know all the dust and the gate and stuff like that. Yeah, there is something about watching something in a VHS where it's not pristine as it is today that makes it seem more visceral. Almost yeah, like yeah. Uh, stunts being done for real. It feels like something's really happening. Yeah, you get the the slightly watery sound nowadays. The the distortion at the top and the bottom of the screen all the time. <laughs> oh yeah, um, you got to clean your head. Clean your VCR head. <laughs> That's what you got to do. And be kind, rewind. Um, so earlier on, you had mentioned uh, you had drawn a connection between Spider Man and Masters of the Universe, or Spider Man. I should say that Spider Man never getting made. I do know there's mm-hmm. a tie to a film that did get made by Canon. Is that correct? Yes, there is. So actually, yeah, two two very high profile '80s movies ended up turning into an '80s cult classic, but yeah. simply because Canon ran out of money, they were in financial almost destitution at that point. But for a long time, Canon had been preparing Spider-Man from everyone from Joe Zito who directed uh, Invasion USA was attached for a long time for a brief while Toby Hooper they wanted him to do it they had all sorts of different guys cast as Spider-Man so they were that was always for four or five years just every they they would put posters up and it would be in all their sales catalogs everyone believed that their Spider-Man was going to happen 
they had they did Masters Universe in 1987, which ended up it came out even after like there were they, they only released like five or six action figures after the movie came out because the He Man toy toy line was almost dead at that point. The cartoon had been canceled for a year, right. and as he said, it wasn't it wasn't He Man. So even the diehard He Man kid like fans the kids had grown up a little bit and were disappointed by it the movie flopped it did terribly but canon was still going to make a sequel we got that promise of it at the end right <laughs> i'll yeah. be back or whatever it is his hand comes yeah out dolph lundgren had already said he wasn't gonna do it oh uh, they had cast uh laird hamilton the surfer oh more great hair <laughs> they had all the costumes and everything they were set up for mass universe they had all of the new york sets built that were going to be like the um, daily, the Daily Bugle, and all the Spider-Man <laughs> locations, but Canon's checks started bouncing. So their payment to Mattel for the Mass Universe license bounced. Um, they had no money to make Spider-Man, so they ultimately they canceled them. But they had the sets and they had these costumes. They told, uh, they asked director Albert Pune if he could do something with them, if he could salvage, make some of that money back. So they gave him a few million bucks. They had John Claude Van Damme on contract. And he went and made Cyborg, the 1989 post-apocalyptic martial arts film Cyborg. If you look at it and you know that, you can recognize a lot of the outfits. Like the armor that the main villain that uh, Vincent Klin is playing in Cyborg Mm -hmm. is the same armor that Blade was wearing in Masters Universe. Oh, no. There's there's a lot of like He-Man stuff that you can see, on, especially on the bad guys. And... At the end, when all the fighting is taking place in this sort of half-built looking New York, it doesn't look like in a ruined New York. It looks like a New York that they just ran out of money and weren't able to finish. <laughs> That's the Spider-Man set. That, so yeah, those two movies, they, they recouped their some of their sunk cost by making Cyborg out of the aborted Spider-Man and Mass Universe 2 movies. Now I'm going to watch Cyborg just to spot that stuff. I mean, it's, <laughs> were there, are there any other... Uh... I guess, well-known concepts uh, for films that canon didn't get made. They, all sorts of, all sorts of stuff. Uh, they had, a, they had, for a long time, they had planned on doing a version of Pinocchio, mm. but a sci-fi version of Pinocchio, and it was going to be directed by Toby Hooper. It was going to star Lee Marvin as Geppetto. <laughs> oh, these <you> Pinocchio. <laughs> and it was going to be written by the Life Force team, the guys who wrote Life Force. <laughs> I just... Oh, I wish I could. <laughs> I still want to see. <laughs> yeah. But they also, they, they had Al Pacino movies. They had been talking about doing Cobra two with Stallone before over the top flopped. So it seems like at some point their strategy started running out. This idea of you know a picture would be good enough maybe to bring in uh, funding or audiences. Yeah. This is a company that most of their movies are about a million bucks on average. 5 million would be a higher budget one for them. And they go and make Sylvester Stallone the highest paid actor mm. in history for over the top by paying him $12 million, which is almost 30 million bucks when you, well, when you adjust it for inflation, mm-hmm. which Canon didn't have that money. They paid him a $1 million retainer and then went around asking the studios for the 11 million, other $11 million so they could actually pay Sylvester Stallone what they promised him. I would not want to owe him money. Do you think when they went in, they, they did the move? Where they're like, he's going to do this. And he spins the hat. <laughs> That's the pitch. <laughs> That's the pitch. <laughs> yeah, that was their whole... Uh, that was the pitch. Had to have been part of it. You mentioned Toby Hooper. Well, I guess a couple of things. One, you're just throwing back. It's crazy to think that there was a point in time when spite, you couldn't get a Spider-Man film mm-hmm. made or a Captain America movie made. You know, These weren't that hotly sought after you know, licenses as they are today, obviously. But you mentioned Toby Hooper, who, of course, maybe directed Poltergeist. <laughs> maybe he was just there on set when Poltergeist was directed mm-hmm. by Steven Spielberg. Um, but big names in, in, in other, again, some of the you, you know, biggest big names that came out of there, or they, or they had, like John Cassavetes, who you'd never yeah. imagine he made a Canon film. Uh, Franco Zeffirelli, Robert Altman. I mean, it's, it really is insane, that the diversity of... Uh, what they did. Okay, so we want to see how great you are at spotting a real canon film. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we've got some real canon film uh, plot synopses and some fake movies that Ray made up. Okay. And so I'll, I'm going to mix them together and see if you can not only spot the canon film, but if you could tell us which canon film it is, that would even be All right. even better. All right. Okay, so here here's your first one. 
after a nuclear war in the year 1992, mankind has been reduced to prehistoric conditions and is now under the rule of Amazon-like warriors. That's America 3000. Yes! You know your <laughs> stuff. Chuck Wagner. Right. That's crazy to me. So Chuck Wagner of Auto Man mm-hmm. fame. You know, we love Auto Man. Yes, America 3000, which came out in 1986. Of course, you know that already. Mm-hmm. All right, here you go. Here's another one. A woman discovers her mother's old vacuum can suck the intelligence out of people. Will she use the power for good or evil? Real or fake? That does not sound familiar. <laughs> No, it's a fake cannon film. That's a Ray film. That's that's, that's one of my ideas. These are, <laughs> these, are f- these are films that Ray pitched to Menachem Golan and couldn't get produced. No, they could have they could have made it with Cinda Dickey, nineteen eighty five. Had he oh. pitched it at the right time? Just just oh. think though, as she puts it up to like the ear to suck the intelligence out, she could say yeah. things like, uh, "You got a dirty mind." <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> love it. All right, here is another possibly real or fake cannon film. Two troubled teens must save their town once they discover their teacher is a cannibalistic alien. Yeah, sounds a lot like Invaders from Mars. It but, does, but yeah. it's not. It's not. Yeah. It's one Ray made up. <laughs> oh yeah, I just think of Louise Fletcher eating the frogs and yes. Oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. it's like he's All not right. a teenager though. That's... Okay, you're right. And I had Invaders from Mars in here, so I'm not going to give you that one. But well, the, had you read the 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 names that I gave the characters in that movie? Well, I didn't want to. Uh, yeah, I felt like that might have just that would have uh, completely gave it away. Yeah. And here's here's what I had written down for Invaders from Mars. Mm-hmm. After being awoken by a thunderstorm, a boy observes a strange alien spaceship landing just beyond his house. After his father investigates, he returns a changed man. <laughs> uh, yeah, Invaders from Mars, which was directed by Toby Hooper, and, and also was written by da- Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Return of the Living Dead, mm-hmm. um, and special effects by Stan Winston and John Dykstra. Like, you know, it's an A-list crew on there, at least. <laughs> again, yeah, showing the kind of talent uh, they could pull. All right, here, here's another one here. A good friend lures a trucker out of retirement, offering him a quarter of a million dollars to drive some plutonium from Nevada to a high-security operation in Arizona. Real or fake canon film? Could this be Thunder Run? It is Thunder Run! <laughs> another 1986 <laughs> film and this one starred Forrest Tucker yeah it's been a long time that since I've seen that one now so (laughs) yeah and you know when you were talking about stunts uh that they really did at the time I'm wondering do you know if they really jumped the 18 wheeler over a train that was uh the big stunt in that film I'll have to find out if they really did that or not they probably Um, did (laughs) they probably did yeah here look I'll give you a 10 spot this truck could drive as fast as you can towards that ramp (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Wait, why is that train approaching? <laughs> All right, so you did you did great on that, uh, on our test. You're legitimate. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> well, Austin, uh, I certainly, we certainly appreciate your time today. We wish you the best, the very best of luck with the first volume of the Canon Film Guide, Volume 1, 1980 through 1984, and look forward to the other uh, two volumes. Um, hopefully we'll be done reading this one by then. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that was fun. Um, it brings back for me so many memories of, you know, my, my friends and I had that routine of going during the summers, like you said, when it was raining, you know, you'd go to the rental store and scrape some pennies together and that's all you needed. Rent as many movies as you could afford that would last you through the weekend uh, for when you weren't playing outside. Or even my parents, you know, we would go to the video store and uh, it would be some kind of routine we would do on a weekend night. You said the same thing uh, mm-hmm. on some episode, getting pizza. Yeah, you get some pizza, you grab some movies, and that's not that's from the day VHS was available to rent when you were a kid all the yeah. way through high school. That was like a thing you did. Yeah, and it's, it's definitely different now. Like you know, looking on a screen with your kids trying to find a movie to watch, like flipping through a cable TV guide or. You know, you're on Apple movies and flipping through images of things. It's not the same as walking through those aisles and I'm in the horror, you're in the comedy and, you know, oh, check mm-hmm. this one out. You know, or you're peeking behind that beaded curtain into the adult section. Like, can I see any boobies? Yeah. And, and you've thing. only got $2. So you have oh. to find two movies. Yes. You can't, there's not a thousand choices to pick from like now. And you're, everything's based off the cover. And it's two dollars really? between like you and your siblings, or yeah. you and your friends. Yeah, you and five of your buddies are at the store, all holding movies up and waving them around. Yes. Like, check this out, and Reanimator. You, you got to advocate for your movie. No, this one's good. That one looks like it sucks. Look, this one's going to be scary. 
Uh, yeah. And you know, again, we've talked about this on a few episodes now. It seems like even that era was, in that regard, was an era of compromise. We came together. Look, I'm, I'm doing the opposite now of making things political. Compromise, <laughs> right? If you could work that out yeah. among your friends who today you're fighting with on Facebook because he posts nonsense, so you got to unfollow him. <laughs> but you probably could have worked out. Do you know how many people, you know how many friends have unfriended me on Facebook? I wouldn't know because I unfriended you. Quite a few. Ah, just kidding. <laughs> That's okay. I didn't, you know. Um, well, yeah. you can't because you still need me to be able oh, to access the page. Is that what I uh, know? I remember. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. the only reason why. Speaking of that, uh, a small announcement: Ray's starting his own podcast. Uh, in addition to the idiots, Ray will also be uh, helming his own podcast. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> yeah, I am actually going to have a little side hustle here called uh, the Beyond a Shadow of a Doubt podcast, which will be uh, a little more vulgar, a little more. Uh, <laughs> uncouth <laughs> a lot less editing because i don't know how mm. but i'm gonna cover decades that aren't the 80s mm. that's why i'm doing that i'm gonna i'm gonna just cover everything else and see what happens very cool so yeah and folks we'll share stuff on our idiots page so those people know how to find you yeah and when you drop your first episode <laughs> yep as soon as i as soon as i do it and then i'll be set to drop it somewhere very good okay so what did we learn from Austin about the look I learned a lot about Canon films but did we prove anything about the 1980s we have proven beyond a shadow oh. of a doubt wow that the 1980s yeah. were great because mm -hmm. companies like Canon existed uh, wow what you're saying is not a it's not hyperbolic no folks don't realize and only I appreciate now having read Austin's book how much they contributed to the pop culture of the 1980s and what followed. Yeah, the, the landscape in the 80s was so much cooler because B-movies and big-budget movies really weren't that much different. Yeah. Like today, these kids, they watch the X-Men. They don't want to see a low-budget movie. Mm -hmm. if, it, if it ain't got this stupid CGI, they don't want to see it, so. Right. And it was the low-budget films of canon that were the predecessor to those films. Yeah. Very cool. Hey, we will talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya. Yeah.